Hello, welcome to the podcast Psychiatry Talk. I'm Dr. Michael Blumenfield, the Sidney E. Frank Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at New York Medical College and currently in private practice in Woodland Hills, Los Angeles, California. This podcast will examine various topics in psychiatry and mental health. This will include new interviews with experts in various areas, as well as interviews I've recorded in the past. I will also personally discuss subjects that I've written about in my blog, psychiatrytalk.com, or on new topics. Your comments will always be welcome at mblumenfield at gmail.com. That's mblumenfield, B-L-U-M-E-N-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. And now let's get going with today's podcast. Today my guest is Dr. Joseph Abrahams, who has had a very full and interesting career as a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, and will be celebrating his 102nd birthday next week. Dr. Abrahams has been in private practice in Washington, D.C., San Diego, and San Luis Obispo. He has extended his practice to work with schizophrenics, depressed, and psychopathic individuals. The latter three groups are usually excluded from a psychoanalytic approach. Uh, So this should be particularly interesting to talk about his work. Uh, He has employed group and family therapy and institutional therapy in his practice. But central to all of this has always been a Freudian approach, which he utilizes free association and dream analysis. So this, I'm really looking forward to this interview. And uh, first, let me wish you uh, a happy birthday. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, You know, I always think it's interesting to look into the origin of how my guests have been led to a career in psychiatry. So perhaps we can start off by asking you, what made you decide to become a physician and go to medical school? My friend, Nady Rifkinson, who is a doctor uh, just graduating, said, you don't want to become a, an historian. You want to become a, a doctor. Make some money, Joe. How about that? Okay. So that's, that's, what, uh, that's what led I, you to start off that way, huh? I had read Arrowsmith by Sinclair Lewis, and I was very taken with his pioneering uh, work, research, and I want to become a research doctor. Uh, now, I understand that, uh, that you went into the military in uh, 1941, just after your internship. Was, was that uh, before or after Pearl Harbor? Uh, well before, uh, about eight months before, I had been uh, following what's been going on in Europe and became alarmed at Hitler's rise. And uh, I, almost, I came close to volunteering to, to go over and fight in the Spanish Civil War against Franco, but instead went to medical school. Okay. And so when the war, be- when I graduated from medical school, I joined the reserves and got ready to fight. So, so actually, you went into the military after medical school. Yes. Okay. So, what was your role 
during this wartime. It was uh, it was the the middle of the war, and you were a doctor, but uh, not yet trained as a specialist. So, what was your what was your role in the military? It was the beginning of the war, and I was trained as a general physician. At that time, I had, did have an interest in. So in, in, in psychiatry, I had read Sigmund Freud when I was a teenager, but I was just trained to, uh, to be a general doctor, and so when I enlisted, I was put into a, a tank destroyer battalion, and I became the doctor for the tank destroyer battalion, and I had the job of training my men. I had 17 men under me in my detachment, and I had a job of training them, and there lies a story. I trained them to become uh, doctors on their own because we were going to North Africa to fight Rommel, and North Africa was all spread out, and the battalion then would become like a cavalry battalion, and detachments will spread out all over the countryside. And I trained my men to take my place. Take, take, your, got, take your place if, what, if something happened to you? Something happened to me and in the course of our fighting. So, so they became very responsible people. I see. And uh, you were dealing with combat injuries, is that correct? That was what we, that illness and combat, yes. So, so there must have been some pretty severe injuries that you were dealing with. What happened was that my battalion was set up against another battalion, and uh, because we had uh, my battalion had drunk more heavily than the other b battalion, we we didn't make it, and they went over and they were slaughtered to, uh, almost to a man. Only three people remained. And they were slaughtered at Kasserine Pass. And uh, so my battalion then was broken up into four separate battalions uh, and trained to go over uh, at, for D-Day. And, and the reason that your battalion wasn't chosen was, what was the reason? Because my men, because the men of the battalion were heavy drinkers. Wow. That's the truth. You know. Have you thought about that? that interesting quirk of fate uh, as time went on? I've thought a great deal about it. Uh, uh, my wife says that God was on my side, and I felt very guilty at not going over and, and getting killed. Oh, wow. Uh, now, I understand that uh, you eventually worked with military prisoners, but that was later in your career, or did you work with prisoners during the war itself. What happened was that eventually I was put in charge of the therapy. I, I had no training as a psychiatrist. I was put in the charge of the therapy of these uh, in this rehabilitation center for military prisoners. These were our own men who, who had assaulted their officers, gone drunk and AWOL. All right? I see. And so... Somehow or other, the army fixed it so that I was a, I was minted as a, a psychiatrist because I was interested in it, and and, and so 
I, there I was in charge of the therapy. I had no training at all, but I had a certain natural apt aptitude for reaching uh, alienated people. And there I was standing up in front of them, and they said, I asked them what they wanted to talk about. They said, you. And they started giving me a hard time. But I enjoyed it because I liked their robust nature. Okay. And they saw, me, they saw me that way, and they, they, they relaxed. And then everything went very well from then on. And we had a very, very good program that became famous in, in, in the Army. So, so after the war, uh, you decided to take a residency in psychiatry and became a psychiatrist. Uh, what, was the, what was the reason or how did you get to make that decision? Well, uh, the, my men and I wondered why we were so success, successful. And uh, we were partly successful because of our colonel, Colonel Miller, who had read Wayward Youth by August Eichhorn. August Eichhorn was an associate of Sigmund Freud. And, uh, uh, and this man adapted uh, Freud's method to group therapy. And so we followed uh, uh, Wayward Youth in our, in our practice. And uh, I, I, I thereby, there, thereby was one of the first group therapists. I see. So you were you were working you were working with um, Americans who had gotten into trouble, uh, and you were using group therapy techniques to manage them and to help them. Exactly. Uh huh. So then then you left the military, and left, and you yep. fe you felt you were ready to go into a residency in psychiatry. Wanted some regular training. I had no re no regular training. All I had was my my knack, and I was very successful, and I became famous at that point for uh -huh. my success. And so I, I then went to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. to get my training. Oh, that's, uh, that's interesting. And you had a residency uh, there. And then what made you decide to gravitate into studying psychoanalysis? I knew that there was something very crazy about the whole business that I needed to understand. Why was I able to do things that other people were unable to? All right? Uh -huh. Why, what was wrong with me that I was able to f mix it up with these people and come out uh, 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 alive, if not well? And uh, so I had a lot of questions that I had for my analyst. Who, who was your analyst? Edith Weigert, and this was in Washington, D.C., and it was headed by Harry Stack Sullivan, uh, Edith Weigert, and Douglas Noble, and a bunch of others. Were, were there any other teachers or supervisors that influenced your training and development that you want to mention? Douglas Noble. Uh -huh. he, he specialized in dream analysis, and so I got training under him in dream analysis. So I guess it was natural on the basis of your previous experience that you then gravitated towards group analysis, which, which was a new phenomena at the time, as I, as I understand it. Exactly. But I wanted to learn individual analysis. 
and I wanted to learn what was going on inside myself. So I laid down on a couch, Edith Weigert's couch, and I free associated in the Freudian method. All right? Uh-huh. And, and in the middle of it all, she says, Dr. Abrams, you, you're doing this group therapy over at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, and you've got to stop it. And I said, why? She said, because Edith Weigert, she said, um, Harry Sack Solomon uh, uh, and, uh, uh, says, you need to work individually. And I said, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm successful right now in working at, at St. Elizabeth's. And she says, well, that's what, uh, that's what you got to do. And so I had to quit doing my group therapy and just individ- do individual. So I learned it their way. All right. So you gave in to your analyst for that I, time. I gave in to the system, sir. Okay. Um, now, I, I noticed that in the mid-60s, you joined President Kennedy's Peace Corps. Uh, what did you do in it, and, and what was that like? Uh, I only was in it for a fairly short period of time. and went down to Colombia, uh, South America, uh, and consulted with their training program. For the young, young, for their for their Peace Corps people, it was a very enjoyable experience. It was relaxed, and I came back, and I didn't do any more on that score. Somewhere, but, somewhere along the line, um, you got involved with your own family. Can you tell us about your family? My first wife, uh, uh, I met her as a nurse during the war, and we fell in love. And I looked her up afterwards, and we got married. And uh, uh, it didn't work out. She idealized me and then easily became disillusioned. So she, was, she became very, it became a very troubled marriage. And I learned about marital therapy in the course of trying to do something about it. Eventually, we divorced after 28 years. Did you have any children? One, a daughter who's now a cardiologist. Now, I, I know throughout your career you've been interested in politics. Is that, is that true? That's very true. I've been in, interested in local politics uh, uh, during in my entire life, practically. Did and uh, uh, in Washington, I, uh, I, I worked for... Um, Against Goldwater. Ah. Remember he, when he was... Yeah. In fact, in fact, that's interesting that you bring up Goldwater because I want to ask you about what you think about the Goldwater rule. Now, just in case some of our listeners aren't familiar with it, the Goldwater rule is where the American Psychiatric Association has a code of ethics that says that psychiatrists should not analyze or attempt to diagnose the public figure who they have not examined. And that originated when Goldwater was running for president, as you just mentioned, and a group of psychiatrists spoke out that they thought that he was paranoid. And, and now there are similar concerns that some psychiatrists have publicly stated that they believe that the current president, President Trump, has a narcissistic personality or even pathological narcissism. Uh, and therefore is not emotionally fit to serve as president. So what I'm wondering about, 
What do you think about the so-called Goldwater rule where psychiatrists speak out politically as a psychiatrist? Well, it has something to it. I think that it's best when you uh, work with somebody that you see them face to face and you press the flesh and you get to know them that way in depth and you listen to their dreams and all that kind of stuff. You have to you have to get to the core of the individual, to the soul of the individual, to really treat them. So you, it's more difficult to do that at a, at a distance. But the question that I was raising was, what do you think about psychiatrists who speak out and say that somebody like Goldwater uh, has a psychological personality or has some kind of a pathological personality or Trump, and they say that that person shouldn't be president because of that psychological state. I hold strongly to that. Hold strongly that they shouldn't say it? Shouldn't. Should not. Yeah. Okay, so you su support the Goldwater rule. Okay. Uh, I've written about it. Okay. So your, your position is that psychiatrists should not speak out uh, professionally. They can speak out privately, but not professionally. I know. I hold to the need to know that the psychiatrists have a responsibility to inform America about this, the dangers of this guy. Okay, so then you think that psychiatrists should speak out even though they haven't examined the person personally. Yeah, ethical if they didn't. Oh, okay. So that's then, then you, what you're really saying is that you don't support the Goldwater Rule. The Goldwater Rule says that psychiatrists, if they haven't examined a person, they shouldn't no. speak out. I hold to. I'm a very conservative uh, psychiatrist. I make sure I know what I'm talking about when I'm talking to, with a patient, etc. And in this instance, I think that, that the, the bigger consideration is the fact that this guy is dangerous. People would say, well, you're, you can't speak out as a psychiatrist about the president because you haven't examined him. You haven't spoken about his inner psychological working, and therefore you can't really make a diagnosis of him and psychologically speak out. Maybe as a citizen you could say you don't like him, but you can't speak out as a psychiatrist. At least that's what the Goldwater rule would mean. But uh, any goddamn fool can tell that this guy is sick. Okay. All right. I, I take what you're saying is uh, clear that uh, we, we put aside the Goldwater rule. That's, uh, the, the, certainly psychiatrists are split on that issue, and, and the dialogue continues on that. Okay. Right. Now, now I, I know, I know uh, you've written about some very interesting topics that, uh, that I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about. I, I, I know that you've uh, written about the uh, messianic imperative and yes. more, more recently about the human soul. Do, do yes. you relate these to psychiatry and psychoanalytic and psychodynamic concepts or are they different or what, what, what would you say about it? The soul, I think, is the, is the core item in the whole thing uh, of, of psychiatry and psychoanalysis. It, it deals with the essence of the individual, the core uh, uh, ego ideal, the core of spiritual beliefs, 
the core feeling having to do with survival of the human soul. Mm-hmm. And I've come to this gradually as I've gone in, through my career. But I want to go into earlier phases of my development, if I, if I, if I may. Sure. Uh, at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, uh, 6,700 patients in that hospital, a very, very large staff uh, of psychiatrists, nurses, uh, uh, regular doctors, uh, uh, educators, a whole range of personnel. I succeeded in, in Howard Hall in forming a, a therapeutic community with the worst of them. And it, it became known around the hospital so they asked me to do that with the rest of the hospital. So I first set up a training program of the personnel, 34 people in each of the years. I had 10 years of that. And we, we met, and I've written the thing up, uh, and I became interested in the nature of their profession and of my profession. What are we professing? Where, what does it get back to? And each of these 10 years, these people got together to talk about what they were professing. And they got into the psychoanalytic mode of thinking and feeling and analyzing. I, then, I wrote that up. And uh, then uh, I decided that I needed to, uh, to, to study it further. So I took off a sabbatical year and came out to California. But my marriage broke up and I couldn't, I couldn't afford the, the sabbatical, so I had to go back to work. So I transplanted myself to California and started work in San Diego and then took on a general, pra- general psychoanalytic practice and then started to work with a whole bunch of uh, neurotic people. So I've had experience with psychotic, psychopathic, and neurotic. Now, I I know somewhere along the line, you uh, had some observations about the Japanese prisoners of war. Uh, Am am I correct on that? No, what happened was that I had a a Japanese uh, psychoanalyst, a lady, a samurai lady, came across, came over twice to get trained by me in group and family therapy. I went to Japan and they honored me for it, as only the Japanese can do. Okay, so, so I th- was there some work that you did with the prisoners, or am I mistaken there? No, the prisoner thing had to do with my, my original work. I did have work, I did have the, the Federal Prison Service, as a result of my work during the war, followed me and asked me to do a piece of work, uh, experimental work, up in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And, uh, and I, had, I ran a seminar with the top personnel in, in the Federal Prison Service, and they were making ready to, to do a big piece of work when Johnson decided... He, he got too stuck up, uh, too mixed up in, 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 in Vietnam, and he quit his great society. So that opportunity 
to work within the prison field uh, disappeared. Otherwise, I, I would have done some work up there. So uh, what are you doing recently? What, how do you keep yourself busy now? I, I've, I've written a whole bunch of books, and I've just, uh, I've just sent in my, uh, my seventh book, and I'm working on my eighth book. What's the subject of the last, last two books? The, 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 the work that I just sent in was Circles of Change, an adventure in institutional and personal self-transformation, therapeutic community at a ta Tascadero State Hospital. It's a long title, but I felt I needed to get the whole thing in. The important thing there is that I worked in such a way that the groups develop their own way of going, and they start teaching me. So that certainly keeps you busy then, I take it, writing and reflecting on things. Yes. Well, any, any uh, words of wisdom as you approach your 102nd birthday? Have a good mama and papa and good genes. And I didn't talk about how they started me on my journey. Well, uh, so, well tell us about that. It's a very interesting story. My mother uh, was a very curious individual. She had to understand things from inside out. And she wanted to know from whence came the cuckoo in the, her father's cuckoo clock. She had to find out. So she took it apart. Or she got a good thrashing for it. So curiosity originated in your family. You got it, you know. And when I was a, a little thing, about three years old, my younger brother just was born. And I had to find out what I had, I felt his skull, it, it, what's called the fontanelles, and I, the soft spots in his skull. And I wondered what they were about. And I thought of using my mother's knitting needle to inquire further. I fortunately didn't do that. But I had that curiosity thing that my mother had. My father was a very enterprising guy. Every time, everywhere he turned, he, he formed a company of to, to do it and that type of thing. And I, I've got that enterprise in me. So I'm still at it. So curiosity and enterprise have kept you going and still keep you going. Got it, kiddo. Okay, well, I really want to thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today. And again, a most happy 102nd birthday, Dr. Abrams. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate your good words. This concludes today's podcast. Your comments are always welcome at mblumenfield at gmail.com. That's M-B-L-U-M-E-N-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. This is Dr. Michael Blumenfield wishing you a pleasant day.